0: In this episode, I talk with Greg Mercer of Jungle Scout about what it takes to create a million-dollar brand on Amazon.
1: You're listening to the Amazon Private Labeler Show Podcast. Hosted by seven-figure e-commerce seller and digital entrepreneur, Nick Landowski. This
0: is the show to get the tips and strategies to take your business to the next level. So strap in and get ready because it's time to escape the rat race and build your own e-commerce empire. Let's do this. Hey, hey, everybody, what's going on? Welcome to episode number 118 of the Private Labeler Show. How the heck are you doing? I hope you guys are having a great day because today, guys, I am super pumped to bring to you an amazing conversation and interview that I recently did with Greg Mercer of Jungle Scout. So in this Conversation that I'm about to play, Greg really brings his A game. Uh, we dive into a lot of amazing content, a lot of amazing stuff for you that I know you're going to absolutely love. Even if you're a very experienced seller, there's a few things that Greg's going to talk about in here that'll even make you go, "Huh, didn't know that. That's really interesting. I want to, I want to do that. I want to use that." And uh, guys, you know, in this we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Greg's going to go through. Uh, finding different products, different strategies with that, launch strategies, and how to grow your Amazon business to create either a successful six, seven, or even eight-figure brand on Amazon. So there's just so much goodness wrapped up into this one. A lot of great tips. You're gonna wanna make sure you listen to the very end so you don't miss anything, okay? And at the very end as well, I will do a quick recap for you guys, kind of give you my key Pointers or takeaways from the conversation, and there were a lot of good ones. And uh, as always, guys, check out the show notes for a full breakdown of the episode at the very end. Go to private labelershow.com forward slash 118. I'll remind you again of that at the very end. So just look for that. Okay, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Greg Mercer. Hey everybody, I'd like to introduce to you today the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Greg Mercer. Thanks for coming on the show, Greg.
1: Nick, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm excited to chat with you for the next little while.
0: Yeah, awesome. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, for like the nine people on planet Earth that don't know who you are at this point in our community, could you just do a very quick kind of like a bio a little bit about yourself and just kind of familiarize yourself to the audience, please?
1: Absolutely. So just the 32nd history of me, went to college to be a civil engineer, became a civil engineer, hated it, wanted to become an entrepreneur. I found out about selling on Amazon, I think it was about six years ago now, was able to replace my income by selling physical products on Amazon. And that's um, when I decided to quit my job. So did that for a little while. I then uh, found the biggest pain point for me was figuring out which new products to launch. So I was like, okay, I'm pretty good at, um, at this whole Amazon selling thing. The only thing holding me back from scaling this to a multi-million dollar company is I just really need more products to launch. So I built a system to do that. And then I later on turned that into a software product that some of you are familiar with called Jungle Scout. So if we fast forward to today, I now spend probably about 90 or 95% of my time on the software. So that's the Jungle Scout software. And I still have my Amazon business and that still kind of like keeps me in the know of what's working, what's not, whatever else. So, um, yeah, I didn't have it, uh, I've had a load of fun doing it.
0: Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Actually, I was, I was probably one of the early adopters of your Jungle Stout Chrome extension back in the, back in the heydays, man. So a long time ago. So yeah, it's been very valuable for me. So thank you for creating that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad you've enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, all right, here's what I've been doing. Like the past few people I've, I've had conversations with on the podcast. I've kind of just kind of been sticking to this opening theme here. Uh, you obviously have your ear to the ground. You said you're still actively selling, which is great. You you know, this is what you do. This is your bread and butter. Uh, you help sellers. You help businesses and brands grow. So from your perspective, as um, we kind of hang out here in early part of 2019, what do you see as far as like, what is it going to take for sellers to remain competitive on Amazon? Because obviously each year that goes by, you know there's kind of this battle cry of "ooh, things are getting more competitive and tighter and it's a little bit harder than it was just the year before and all this and that so kind of what's your take on everything and where we're at and where we're going
1: yeah great question so you know it's kind of funny because on one hand, I, I, I do agree with you that, you know, each year it goes by, it gets a little bit more competitive, but and it's also kind of funny to think back, you know, like I think five, six years ago when people back then were also screaming that it was way too competitive to get started. You know what I mean? So it's right. like, that's, will probably just be like a kind of a never ending thing that people will always be worried about that and thinking about that. But let me tell you a little bit about some of uh, my products that tend to do the best. So, you know, I've seen different products I've launched and died over the years and whatever else. And the ones that are really still doing well in the type of products that I tend to launch today are things that I'm making improvements on. And, you know, a lot of the listeners of your podcast, I think, are familiar with this. But literally all I'm doing is I'm just finding products that are selling well on Amazon, even though they're getting relatively poor reviews. I dig into the reviews to find out what's wrong with them. And then I work with factories to make improvements on those. And sometimes they're just really simple things like making the fabric a little bit thicker because people complain after a few washes that it um starts to tear. And other times it's actually more complex. Like I did or I just launched a keyboard tray. And on the keyboard tray, I changed the clamps, the dimensions of them. I put a new slider on it that had like ball bearings in it. So that was like a little bit more advanced and took a lot more just kind of like back and forth with the factory. But if I was launching a brand new product today, if you're listening to this right now, it's like, all right, I'm ready to get into this Amazon thing. I want to launch a brand new product. I would either choose something that you've made improvements on. So it's legitimately better than anything else there on Amazon. Or I would just choose something that's very niche and doesn't have a lot of demand and a lot of competition as a result. I'd say both of those are great places to start.
0: Okay, excellent. So that, that's great advice. Um, so as, just for the audience there, in a nutshell, just find something to improve upon and give the market what it wants. Like just imp- keep improving, and kind of that general strategy is is going to be pretty good to go going forward. I would, I think we could all agree. Now, on the, on the flip side of that, like, what do you see? Sellers kind of making the biggest mistakes in what areas? What do you see it over and over and over year after year? Like what's the big hang up?
1: I think the big hang the the biggest problem that I see is people Try to sell something on Amazon because they weren't able to find it or were not able to find anything like it So they're like, oh, I want to be the first one to sell this on Amazon and what happens more often than not is you launch it and there's just crickets. It's like, well, that's because Amazon's not a great platform to educate users about a new type of product, especially if there's nothing else out there like it. You know, something like Kickstarter is good to do that. Like you can build up a um, build up an audience around it. And it's a great place for people to go who are trying to like discover new products. But on Amazon, like 99% of the purchases are search based intent. So, you know, if, if there's not even like words that people can be searching for that they're familiar with to find your product, they likely never will. And as a result, it won't sell. So let me just give you a, a quick example of that. You know, if I'm like trying to make a new style of coffee cup, that's perfectly fine because people are already searching for coffee cups. If I'm trying to make a way to, I'm I'm trying to think of an example here, but like a way to, um, uh, reheat, uh, coffee using, uh, a chemical system that's built for campsites or whatever else. I don't know. It's like, it's not something that people are really searching for. And as a result, they won't, um, end up finding it on Amazon.
0: Okay. Excellent. So there you have it. The basics folks, let's, let's all main maintain relevancy going forward. You know, we don't want to have old strategies and old ideas. So it's pretty simple. Just, uh, kind of give the market what it wants. And uh yeah the Kickstarter thing have you ever have you ever really dabbled too much into that yourself?
1: No, I haven't. I've always been tempted to. I um I've always been like a little bit of like a creator and inventor type personality like just like for fun. That's always like been a little bit of a passion of mine. So I've always told myself that like I need to like, kind of in, invent something and launch it on Kickstarter, but once you start
0: really looking into it, it's like, oh right,
1: man, this is a lot of work and can be a lot of money up front. But so no, to answer your question, I've not done it.
0: Okay. was just curious if we had a video series in the works for your guys doing something with that, but maybe in the maybe future. Maybe soon. <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe in the future. Not so, right now.
0: So let's dive a little bit more into uh, the product selection, sourcing, kind of all things related since we're kind of going down that avenue already. Um, what are, you know, if somebody's kind of looking for that next product, can you give them a a decent criteria? Like what should they absolutely make sure they're looking for? So you already mentioned things like, you know, making sure you have demand, right? You don't want to launch products that you, you think people are going to want to buy. You kind of already want to know that, but what other things should sellers or what other criteria should sellers make sure their product meets before they even think about launching?
1: Yeah. So I think of a few of the basic things and some of these, your listeners are probably already familiar with others might. Um, resonate as something newer, something they haven't thought about but demand is the most important thing that we already spoke about and if you use a tool like jungle scout you know you can see how many units per month that these uh listings are selling okay so then after that it's like okay well there's lots of products that sell well on amazon what's the co- competition like because you can find a lot of things that sell really well but the competition is just so stiff and even though um The number of reviews isn't a direct correlation by any means to like the um, uh, The search engine rankings on Amazon I still believe that the number of reviews is a great indicator for the level of competition because it's like the maturity of these listings It's also the social proof that you're going up against. So that's like the main indicator. I look at there I also tend to only sell products that are like 18 or $20 or more expensive Back in the day, I had a whole bunch of products that were less expensive than that, and I just found it's really hard to make any kind of decent profits based off of those. Um, so those are a few of the things. Uh, if you, Those are probably like the most important. Once you get into kind of like the finer print type areas, now I'm looking for stuff to make sure it doesn't have any legal issues, like patents or like it requires uh, licensing, um, or kind of uh, a number of things in that area. So th- those are some of the basics of how I go about judging whether or not these are good opportunities.
0: So you mentioned what What was your price point that you're kind of up to now?
1: Usually at least 18 or $20 and I tend to actually go quite a bit higher than that now. The downside of going higher than that, let's say like a $50 product, is it typically takes a lot more capital to place that first purchase. So you know, once you've established your business and you're generating a good amount of revenue, you have more cash to reinvest into your business. But if you're listening to this and you're looking to launch your first product, you know, those items that sell for 50 bucks might cost you like $20 to land them. You know, if you have to place a order for a thousand of those, you're talking about some serious cash.
0: Gotcha. So yeah, obviously when you're just getting your feet wet, those are things to think about. But as you get more experience, there's going to be, um, less competition that way. When, when people are spending more per unit and higher price products just because that kind of scares a lot of people away. So think of it as, that as a potential opportunity, um, uh, for barriers of entry, at least now, um, I'm just kind of going to get your take on this. So do you have any, any, uh, like warning categories or warning niches that you would maybe steer sellers away from entering in this current market?
1: Hmm. Good question. All of the products that tend to give me the most headaches are, is just really anything that's complicated. So I, I, I tend to never learn from my own lessons and still every once in a while I launch a product like these more like electronic products are more complicated. And what I mean by this is just like lots of moving parts or kind of like a lot going on. And it just, you know, like sometimes I have short term success with these, but it just feels like that they never work out for me long term just because like the quality control of them is so important. So there's not necessarily a particular niche, but uh, that's one warning that I have. And then I I guess the other warning that I would have would just be anything that uh, tends to be more of like – or that you can see as more of kind of like a fad-like product. So, of course, like in hindsight, it's always really easy to identify kind of fads, right? Like fidget spinners, um, probably even like selfie sticks, some of those things. It's a little bit harder to identify them in the moment. But you can still usually gauge whether or not like, all right, is this like a pretty like faddish, like kind of cheesy? Like, I don't really know why this is so popular right now type thing. Uh, Those styles of products tend to get very saturated very quickly. And then, you know, demand goes down. And then after that, it's just a race to the bottom for people to just get rid of their inventory.
0: Gotcha. You know, you mentioned um, be wary of products with a lot of moving parts. Um, other things I'd like to mention is, is like just from my own personal experience, something I'm actually dealing with right now. Um, zippers, be very cautious of zippers. It sounds mm, it sounds one. so simple, but yet, um, you know, when that zipper kind of is very important to the functionality of the product in some way, shape, or form, or whatever, uh, it can cause you a lot of headaches. I've actually had um, a product that I've been just dealing with all sorts of issues on, just kind of out of nowhere, because the zippers. Um, is for whatever reason now that the ones that the, the supplier were using were not functioning correctly. So the zippers were kind of breaking off and things like that. And what happens when that happens? Well, you know, a lot of returns, a lot of bad reviews, mm-hmm. a lot of angry people. And, uh, you know, I kind of go scrambling and I'm like, darn zippers, you know, like just be cautious right. of, of like weird things that you wouldn't think are issues. But yeah, the moving parts, electronics, obviously, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of things that can happen with that. So that's just, that's just good advice for everybody just to kind of consider, when you're selecting that product. But also too that does provide opportunities. So, you know, if you notice that the other sellers aren't replacing the zippers on the product and the customers are going crazy, there's an opportunity for you to go in there and upgrade and satisfy a need and take care of a customer so that when you launch your product, it, you know, it addresses those issues. So, it depends upon how you look at everything, I, I guess.
1: Yeah, a great point.
0: So, um, let's just say, you know, we've we've kind of established a a market or a niche or a, a product that we want to sell and we've kind of ran the numbers maybe I don't know maybe we're like hey we're gonna make six eight ten dollars profit per unit you know we're really excited and now it's time now it's time to go and actually try to get this thing made to try to see who can help us out on the supplier end, whether we go to Alibaba or whoever um, whatever options are out out there right now Um, what is your tips and you obviously dealt with a lot of suppliers before and back and forth and things like that but what are some of the best tips that you could give to somebody to finding a really top-notch supplier to work with. Yeah,
1: that's a really good question. And I, I don't think I told you about this, Nick, but um, or let me start with a question. Are you familiar with uh, kind of like import trade records and databases associated with them? Like an example is um, there's one company called Pangeva and there's a few other ones that let you search through these uh, trade records.
0: Um, import records, meaning like you can find Every every import, let's say, that came to the U.S., correct? It's all documented. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm partially familiar. I've kind of dabbled in that a little bit, sure.
1: Cool. Okay, so I've been using, that's kind of been like my number one way to find good factories. I've been doing that for, let's say, like the past year. And yeah, I don't think I, I told you about this yet, but actually two weeks from yesterday, from when we're recording this, so if you're listening in the future, it's already been released, Jungle Scout's actually releasing that into its tool. And, you know, even if you don't choose to use it inside Jungle Scout, let me just tell you a little bit about why this has been so beneficial for me to find like really high quality suppliers. So what we're talking about here is anytime you import goods into the US, you have to file a paperwork with the government, right? It's like what's uh, the contents, like the the quantity, the weight, uh, and some different pieces of information. And you also get where it was being shipped from. So essentially the factory's name and who's purchasing it. Okay, And then through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, companies can actually purchase this data from the government. And that's what companies like um, Pangeva and a few others have done over the course of the past few years. Well, I kind of got fed up with paying Pangeva $400 a month for access to this data. And it was also organized really poorly. So we at Jungle Scout decided to just do the same thing for them, but have it targeted... Um, And especially catered just for Amazon sellers and make it really easy for them to use. But my favorite way to use this data is actually to look for what factories my competitors or future competitors or whoever's getting the best reviews on Amazon are using. So since you can search by the purchaser, you know, the importer of these different goods, you can pretty easily figure out what factories these different companies are using. So, you know, back in the day, I used to always just use Alibaba to find factories. Then I was going to some trade shows and, you know, different, sometimes, you know, I I had good success finding factories, other times it's a little bit harder. But what I found was like the biggest pain point for me was it was hard to know the quality of the products that these factories were producing, okay? So pretty much any factory can make one good sample, right? So I would always order a sample, they would send me a sample. You know, some were a little bit higher quality than others, and that's usually how I judge my factory. But then a problem that I ran into is like it's much easier for a factory to make one really high quality sample than it is to do like a production run of a thousand of these units. So I kind of, you know, since that was my biggest pain point, I decided instead what to do is just figure out which factories are already producing the highest quality products. And more often than not, it it tends to be um, like really good prices around these as well. So you can either search by either the competitor's names or the Amazon sellers that are getting really good reviews, or you can just figure out which factories big brands are using. So for example, if you want to start selling backpacks, you could check to see what kind of backpacks are, uh, sorry, what factories backpack manufacturers like North Face or Patagonia or Jansport or whoever else is using, and then contact those particular factories. So that's my best tip I have, um, I think for the podcasters now about how to go about looking for high quality factories.
0: That's excellent. So hopefully you guys uh, took all that in there. Okay, so if you're kind of struggling or you're just searching around on Alibaba, maybe there's a different way. So you're saying that that type of integration is is going to be worked into your tools?
1: Yeah, I was actually, um, we have a, a, a few people uh, kind of like beta testing it right now. And then our public launch date is on March 26th. So about two weeks away from when we're recording this, all that functionality be released into the jungle scout, uh, web application.
0: Okay. Game changer folks. That's cool. Yeah. It's going to be really cool. I'm really stoked about it. Yeah. So that, that, that's awesome. That's awesome here. So, um, now let's just say we kind of find that supplier, right? We, we find the one that we think we want to work with. They sent us a couple samples or we had some good communication or whatever, but let's talk about negotiation, right? I think a lot of times, um, sellers, especially if they're kind of newer or they're dealing with a new supplier, it's kind of that awkwardness, you know, you're kind of just kicking tires. They're not really sure who you are. They deal with a lot of contacts and people, you know, reaching out to them all the time, wanting quotes and samples. And, you know, a lot of times it might not, uh, not lead to anything to the, on their end. So they're trying to kind of trying to match you up just as much as you're trying to match them up. But what would you say is a good tip that when you kind of establish this is who you want to work with to try to get the best pricing? Like, how does that really work? In, in, mm. uh, in this whole negotiation process?
1: Good question. I, uh, I think I have two tips to answer this. The first tip is if you legitimately do have multiple suppliers that are pretty good to work with and you'd be happy to work with both of them, it's a lot easier to negotiate a a better price because when you're saying like, Hey, like if you don't drop your price, I'm going to go work with this other factory and you really mean it, it seems like it just always works better. You know, like they can, I think can just kind of sense that. And it's always nice to know like, Hey, if you don't actually beat this by another quarter or whatever else, I'm going to go work with this other factory. So the first tip I think would be try to find at least two factories that you'd be happy working with. And that just gives you a lot more kind of like bargaining power, um, to do so. Okay. So so I think that's the, that's probably the biggest one. Uh, the second tip I was going to give is just that these factories usually value long lasting relationships. So they know that, you know, they fully understand that, you know, one order isn't what's going to keep the lights on this factory for the next five years, like long lasting business relationships that come back and purchase reorder after reorder after reorder are the types of clients that they want. So anything that you can do to kind of um, either remind them of that or show them that you would be a good essentially business partner for them or a good client for them for years to come, you're better off um, being able to, I think, get like kind of like better rates up front. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll oftentimes just like remind them of that or if they're not able to meet you at the price that you really want. What you could say is you could negotiate up front and just say, OK, like I'll meet you at your price for this order. If next time I come back to reorder, like reorder number two, and number three, you come down to this price. And after reorder number four and moving forward after that, you come down to this price. So that's something else you can do to just say like, hey, I'm in this for the long run, um, but this price isn't going to work with me long term. But I want to start this relationship with you.
0: Oh, those are great tips. There, great tips. Um, would you, you know, let's say we're talking about making modifications to products and improving them. Um, have you ever experienced any like resistance from a supplier that, you know, you kind of said, Hey, I want to, want to change a few things here. And have you ever had them kind of say, eh, yeah, we could probably do that, but they're just kind of, kind of throwing up some resistance. Like they're really not into it. They don't really, they just kind of want to make the default product that they, the catalog product that they, that they list or whatever. And they don't really want to have to have to work too hard and they just kind of want to keep it simple. Do you, like, have you ever experienced that? And if so, uh, what advice would you give to somebody that is going to go to this supplier, maybe for the first time, haven't really placed any orders with them yet. And they want to make a whole bunch of changes to the product.
1: Yeah, I've definitely experienced that. And I'd say more often than not, I get resistance and kickback for that because, you know, they already have the molds and the assembly line and the workers that know how to create the one product. And you're like, hey, I want to change all these different things. And I want you guys to kind of help me with some of it. So expect to get a little bit of resistance. Some factories will just straight up just say, no, like we can't do that. Um, You know, it's not worth it to us or whatever else. At that point, you just need to continue to look for more factories. If there's like a little bit of resistance, but they'll be willing to kind of do it. Some things uh, that you can do to kind of help either uh, or try to help like kind of push the deal through is maybe just give them reminders that like, hey, like, Without this change, I only think I'm going to be able to sell 500 of these units per month. But with these changes, you know, I'm going to be able to sell twice as many, like a, a thousand units per month. And I'm really confident that this is what the customer wants. And as a result, I'm going to sell more and then I'm going to purchase more from you. So you can kind of try to frame it like that, you know, kind of reminding them that by making these changes, you know, we're it's like kind of like a win-win for both of us. So that was probably my best advice around it. That's excellent. Well, actually, let me throw throw in one more little piece. I just remembered is the other thing you could do is like if they're resistance, like uh, an example is this. I was just doing this keyboard tray with this, uh, like I wanted a ball bearing slider. And they originally said like, no, we can't do that style. And I should just kind of put it back on them. I was like, okay, well you know, the, the keyboard trays I'm looking at on Amazon get bad reviews cause it's not smooth. Like if you can't do the type of slider that I'm proposing, do you have another option that's of higher quality or that slides more evenly or more nicer than what you typically do? And that way, you know, you could try to kind of meet them halfway. It's like, all right, well, what do you recommend then? Like, I, I know this part of it's broken. So like, I'm looking to you then for some advice on how to fix it.
0: Yeah. Those are excellent tips there. I think you just got to come armed with a little bit of thought going into it instead of just saying like, Hey, f- you know, here's the changes I want to make and expect that they're going to do it. So if you can kind of s- kind of show them, Hey, you know, I'm going to order more cause I'm going to sell more. It's a win, win. And all this and that, you know, actually I was speaking of the zipper thing. I had these, I have these uh, two, two suppliers that I, I kind of work with and have been working with for years and they, they essentially make kind of the same stuff. And, um, the, the main supplier I was getting this product made from that I had problems with the zipper. They were, even after years of dealing with them, they, they really didn't want to help me too much in fixing the zipper problem, which I thought was kind of weird. I was like, wow, like that, it's really odd. You know, I just kind of expected them to be like, yeah, no problem. And I even gave them all the solutions and things like that. So they were, they were making it really difficult for me and not really wanting to do many of the changes. So I finally got fed up and, um, I reached out to this other supplier that's always wanting to do more of my business always, you know, and I just explained, Hey, I know you guys can make this. And um, here's the issue I'm having and obviously just kind of came forward with what I needed done. And I just said, hey, I've been getting these made by XYZ supplier for a really long time. And if, you know, they can't make them to my expectations and the customers, then I have to figure out how to get them made somewhere else or what have you. Would you guys be willing to make these changes and they just jumped at it and said, absolutely. So I actually just got my sample from them today and it's amazing. Like it's, it's exactly what I wanted. And therefore I'm already, you know, tonight I'm going to go talk to this other supplier that I've been, you know, working with for other things and basically just, uh, try to give them more of my business for this particular product. And it's like, yeah, you know, having that extra supplier to be able to bounce that offer because they know that I work with, you know, my, 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 my context, you know, just like yours and everybody's, they know that we're might be getting our products from multiple suppliers sometimes and things like that. So they're fighting for business as well, but I thought that was right. kind of relevant, interesting to share there on the topic. Yeah, totally. So um, I just wanted to get your opinion. Like, you know, we're mentioning a lot of like communication with suppliers, finding factories and things like that. Have you ever, or would you recommend sellers work with sourcing agents for all this stuff and just put it in the hands of somebody else?
1: sometimes yes i mean the the downsides of working with sourcing agents and to be clear i i have one sourcing agent that i work with sometimes and I, often if i'm ready to launch a new product i'll give it to them and i'll also look for a factory myself i'd say about mm, maybe 30 percent of the time they come back with a better factory at a better price than what i was able to find and 70 percent of the time i'm able to get kind of like a, a better price um and probably either the same factory or you know uh Potentially, even a better faction than what they got. So, uh, the downsides to working with a sourcing agent is it seems to be a little bit harder communication for me, like actually getting the point across to the factory that I'm trying to make, because that's going through a middleman as opposed to me kind of like going directly to the factory. And the communication tends to take a little bit longer. And then this isn't always true but it seems like more often than not it's a higher price and of course because they're marking it up a certain rate right mm-hmm. they might only tell you like oh it's only one percent but um you know like they're it, kind of uh, business culture in china more likely than not they're like getting kickbacks from the factory and as a result the factory is just kind of like raising their prices you know what i mean right but the way i think about it, it's like at the end of the day, like. I don't really care who's getting paid what, like I care about what the price is of the final unit that I'm buying. So it's like, all right, whatever. So those, those are the downsides. The upsides are, it does seem to be easier for uh, kind of like sourcing agents on the ground in China with, you know, like these Chinese directories to find some of the factories that I wasn't able to find, let's say like through the, uh, the trade records or on Alibaba or whatever else. So, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer here. I think it's good to kind of like understand the pros and cons. And, you know, if you find a sourcing agent that you like to work with, it never helps to just see what kind of uh, price they could get you at, uh, you know, like what kind of quality of the product.
0: Okay. Excellent. Just wanted to get your, get your take on that since we were kind of hot on that topic. Um, so in a transition now, you know, let's just say we're, we're ready to launch this product. You know, we've kind of, went on this journey and we're, we're ready to go, ready to rock and roll. So I want to get into some launching stuff and kind of some listing re- related uh, topic. So obviously uh, you're aware, just like a lot of sellers, if, even if you've been in this game for a few years, uh, the process of, let's say, launching products has just wildly changed. I mean, you know, the wild wild west days was just find a deal site of some sorts and that was all you really needed to do because you could get tons of reviews, you could mark your product down to 99% off mm-hmm. and you know, just spin it away and get it to page, uh, top of page one of Amazon within who knows, a very short period of time. You know, that was many years ago at this point but fast forward now, you know, as, as the platform evolves, as, as the rules and the TOS and all the changes have evolved, uh it, it it's required sellers to be a little bit more strategic with launching products. So, you know, you, you talk to a lot of the top sellers out there, the top brands, things like that. Um, is there any is, it, is there any kind of basic things that they're doing time and time again when they launch products? Like what's their kind of basic set list of these are the things here's how they're gonna launch the product every time?
1: Yeah, good question. If you have a existing audience then it's beneficial i think to launch new products to your existing audience and if it's a really loyal audience i could even be at full price if not you could give them a small discount like 10 or 20% or whatever else i um i'm really close with one seller that has built quite a big brand for children's toys And that's what they do. You know, they've built up a Facebook messenger group as well as an email list. And when they launch a new uh, uh, product, that's who they market it to. Unfortunately, most of the people listening to this podcast right now don't have an existing audience to launch their products to. So if that's the case, what I do and what I recommend to do is to do a combination of giving out coupons as well as just really aggressively um, bidding on PPC terms. So I've tried lots and lots of things over the years from um, Facebook ads to this and that and the other thing and at the end of the day to kind of like simplify what it takes to rank well on Amazon is you need sales, like sales is a major factor of what it takes to rank well on Amazon. And of course, when you first launch a problem, you have the chicken and the egg, or excuse me, when you first launch a product, you have the chicken and the egg problem. It's like, all right, I'm on the last page of Amazon, how am I gonna get sales? The way I do that is through distributing coupons. Um, I use JumpSend, of course, because it's our own product, but anywhere that you can find to distribute coupons to people that are going to purchase them, it works well. And then I just do really aggressive PPC um, in conjunction with that. So I've been able to, you know, I found that uh, just doing both of those in conjunction that I'm still able to rank uh, products really well for, you know, like the main keywords associated with that, it you know, it's definitely not as easy to get like reviews anymore as it is in the wild, wild west days, like you were describing, but I, you know, so it might take a little bit longer, but I'm still able to successfully launch products that way.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That like, um, you mentioned PPC or aggressive PPC. Now, would you suggest that just, I know there's probably a lot of different answers and theories on this, but I'm just curious to hear yours. Um, are you going after kind of like your title keyword phrase, uh, words, whatever you're using there for your PPC, right off the bat, or you're kind of going with like a different approach. Uh, a lot of sellers do where they they find like the real long-term, long-tail, um, kind of the the lower lower price, lower comp- uh, competition type of keywords, and kind of just starting there initially. So that way you're just not blowing money out like crazy.
1: I go ahead and I just do all the PPC terms that showed up in my um, keyword research. So that includes those really big, um, uh, really uh, competitive keywords, as well as a lot of the the long tail, less competitive keywords. So you are right that it can turn into a, a pretty significant investment fairly quickly. But what you have to understand when you're doing these launches and what I have to constantly remind myself is, you know, like I'm willing to lose money for this first month in exchange for a brand new product that's going to make me money for like years and years to come. Right. So, I mean, it's a, uh, Uh, I, I'm, I know that it's a scary thing for new sellers. Like, oh my gosh, I just lost, you know, a few hundred dollars last week. Oh my gosh, I lost a few hundred dollars again. When's this ever going to stop? But, uh, you just need to go into it understanding that, that there is like essentially this like startup marketing costs associated with launching your product.
0: Gotcha. And just kind of real quick, somebody's out there going, well, how many units do I know how to give how many units should I be giving away? Obviously it's going to vary for each product. Uh, you know, it's going to be totally different depending upon the product and the market and the competition. But like, what's a good rule of thumb or like how would sellers find that information of like how many coupons or how many units a day should they be kind of giving away?
1: Yeah. So anyone listening to this that has access to the Jungle Scout web app, um, inside of there, we have a keyword research tool called Keyword Scout. And one of the columns in Keyword Scout is uh, the formula that I use for determining how many giveaways I need or essentially how many units I need to sell per day in order to rank in the top few search or the top few listings for any given search term. So that's the way I go about doing it. You know, if you don't have a, a Jungle Scout subscription, you don't want to get one, you know, you can kind of think about it as like a ballpark of about how many units are the, uh, the top seller or the top listings for that keyword selling on any given day. Uh, but that probably won't be quite as accurate as what we give you inside of the tool.
0: Okay, fair enough. That's excellent uh, information there. Now, I guess, uh, you know, if we have somebody that's he keeps hearing about ranking and keyword ranking and stuff like that, would you mind just kind of giving the audience for the few people out there that maybe don't know, kind of just a quick, quick once over on keyword ranking? Like, how does Amazon determine where you're ranked? Like, where does that all come from? Mm,
1: good question. And, you know, no one knows this 100% for certain, right? Right. It's, uh, you know, the algorithm they use is a very complex algorithm. Just like Google, like no one knows for sure how the Google algorithm works. But that being said, I have a pretty good understanding of what it takes to rank well on Amazon, just like a whole bunch of people have a pretty good understanding of what it rank- takes to rank websites on Google. So there's going to there's gonna be a combination of things. Um, the... Uh, so the first one is just going to be like relevancy for that keyword. And Amazon determines that by, you know, a number of factors. Uh, a few of those are just going to be like the category and subcategory that your product's in. It's going to be what keywords are in your title. And it's also going to be what keywords people search for and then end up purchasing your product. So that's probably the most, or one of the most important things is just your, the, the, the way that Amazon views your relevancy for that particular keyword, okay? So that's one of the kind of the three most important pillars. The second one is going to be your sales velocity. So this is just how many units have you been selling and for how long have you been selling them uh, like that well? And I, I think I can confidently say that Amazon does slightly favor products that have been selling well for a long period of time. Uh, versus, you know, products that have just been selling well for a short period of time. Short period of time helps, uh, but the more that you've been selling for the longer period of time, Amazon tends to prefer those types of listings. And then I'd say the last one is the conversion rate of your particular listing, especially for that keyword. So this is telling Amazon, you know, when a shopper lands on your particular listing, how likely is it for them to convert And the more likely that they are to convert, the more likely that Amazon's going to rank you better. At the end of the day, Amazon's looking for sales. That's how they make money. And they also just want to have the best user experience for their customers, which means that they're putting the most relevant listings in front of them. Okay, so how do we directly kind of like correlate those into ranking well? Well... You want to have like high quality pictures. You want to make sure that all your uh, top keywords are used in your listing, especially in your title. You want to make sure that um, you can do everything, that you're doing everything that you can to make sure that your listing is converting well. And, you know, especially in the earlier days when you're not getting many sales, you need to kind of like essentially force sales, you know, by doing things like PPC or like coupons or potentially like dropping the price to increase the amount of sales velocity.
0: Makes sense. That makes sense. So hopefully you guys listening out there, kind of took that all in, Listening to that again. But that's, uh, yeah, obviously none of us know how the algorithm exactly works. And obviously it changes over time too with, you know, little things that they could kind of uh, manipulate or change around with it to, to their liking. But, um, you know, you mentioned just previous, Greg, about reviews, about, you know, it's a little bit more difficult these past few years, especially now when, you know, with the whole review system tightening up and um, all, all things considered. And, and one of the ways to help get more sales is if you have a decent amount of reviews, you know, that's the social proof. So that's just one little extra thing along with your pictures and copying and great product and all this and that. But like what, what advice would you have for a seller that is, tr- is struggling to get reviews or trying to get, Uh, you know, those handful of early reviews kind of early on, because I know sellers should be aware that there's the early reviewer program that Amazon has. It's what the first five reviews will kind of help you try to get, I think it costs $60 or so. I don't, I don't know if that's still a cost, but that's kind of what it was when it launched. But what other bits of advice would you have for somebody that's trying to get over the hump of just getting a good base amount of reviews so that product really takes off?
1: Mm. Unfortunately, there's no Really good ways to like really increase the amount of reviews you get the one thing that's I think still a No-brainer is by sending follow-up emails just asking the shoppers to leave you a review now You know, this is probably I guess now probably a year and a half ago that Amazon started allowing customers to opt out of that type of emails So the deliverability of them isn't as good as it used to be Um, that being said it still definitely increases the number of reviews that you get. And you can sign up for a service like Jump Send to send those emails for pretty inexpensive. So it's, um, I still think it's a no brainer to just create those email sequences and make sure that you're following up with shoppers, asking them to leave a review. So that, that's like, that's the highest impact thing that you can do that's within Amazon's terms of service, of course. The something that I do, even though I'm actually not very convinced that it makes much of a difference, is by putting a, um, insert inside of my packaging. It's pretty cheap to do, you know, just for like a few cents. You can just do a little insert and drop it inside of the packaging. And I try to make it pretty personable. Say like, hey, this is a small business. Every review helps, blah, blah, blah. And then ask them to go to the Amazon listing to leave a review. It's so hard to know, you know, what the return is on that. Like how many reviews, extra reviews you really get because of that. Uh, and I'll probably never really know, but I, I think it might help a little bit. Um, but that's another kind of like easy thing that you can do.
0: Okay. And then obviously, uh, you know, as I pound home to the audience time and time again, the other thing is just having a great product and
1: that's the best thing. Yeah.
0: That just, that's the best thing. So it's, you know, if you have a great product, if you put the work in and made those changes and actually delivered what the market wants based on the research you did. And, you know, if you did things like upgrade the packaging, if you kind of deliver like a better experience overall over time or what have you, um, those are all going to, I think, have a lasting effect on how the customer perceives your product. And then when they do actually go and leave that review, because not all customers are going to immediately, as soon as they get their, your product or that email from you, like review at that moment, it might be months later, what have you. But if that product is right. still holding up and it's still working great and they're using it every day and. You know, they log on their Amazon account and they're like, screw it, I'm going to leave it a review. You know, obviously if, it, if they're still using it many months later, it's still holding up and they're still enjoying it. You know, the good product is going to equate to a lot of four and hopefully five star reviews. So, and on the flip side, obviously you get that product that breaks within the first week. It doesn't matter what email sequence you have or inserts you're putting in there. They're going to be pissed. And what are they going to do? They're going to go to Amazon, try to get a refund and at the same time probably leave you some bad feedback or a bad product review what have you. So I think, yeah, that I know everybody obsesses about reviews, but I just, you know, I think we always still need to kind of reassure everybody that, look, you can do all those extra things to to get extra reviews with the feedback and the follow-up sequences and things like that. That's all good. But the bottom line is it's all about the product, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. And just to set some expectations here, you know, I think we did a study on this a few years ago now, but the, the statistics are probably still um, pretty accurate. Only... And of, of course, this depends on the type of product and the quality or the poor quality or a number of other factors, but only about 2% of Amazon customers organically leave a review. And we found by just sending the follow-up email, again, it totally depends on a number of other factors, but that, that was up to more like 5 or 6%, okay? So just think like you, even with like a good email follow-up sequence, you still have to sell 100 products to get five or six reviews. So, you know, I... I oftentimes run across like in Facebook groups like, oh, man, I've, I've sold uh, 18 products already and no one's left me a review yet. And it's like, well, unfortunately, that's um, quite common. You do have to sell a uh, pretty significant volume to really get up into those high review numbers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I, I always love seeing those comments as well. People freaking out like, you know, they just sold 18 or 20 a few days ago. Why is nobody leaving that? Well, it takes time, you know, right. It doesn't all just come in, in waves, you know, at once. And, you know, it might be spread out over a long period of time. So um, before we move on to outsourcing, I just have kind of some one final question. So dealing with like listings in general. Um, you mentioned, you know, Hey, you got to make sure you got great pictures and a good listing and things like that. What, what do you see in dealing with sellers and, and kind of really being, you know, boots to the ground in this, what are some of the issues? Like, what are some of the the big gaps that certain sellers have when it comes to their listings? What are they missing on over and over again?
1: You know, I think one of the highest impact things that a lot of people miss on just high quality photos or It doesn't necessarily, when I say high quality photos, I don't mean necessarily like taken with a super nice camera, but when I say high quality photos, I mean they accurately portray the product and the customer right away feels like they fully understand what they're going to be getting you know, when I I think there's a saying, right, that like a confused shopper is a shopper that doesn't convert or whatever it is. And if it's unclear to the shopper, like, wait, am I getting that? Am I not getting that? What kind of packaging does it come in? What other, you know, there's going to be different questions associated with different types of products that it's more common that they just say, like, I don't know about this. I'm going to go check something else out. So, you know, that's something that I, I see time and time again, uh, you may be familiar with one of our products called splitly Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. it's pretty cool cause I've been able to see like a lot of different split tests and what makes big differences and what, uh, doesn't one of the, so the kind of like my big picture learning from that is the highest impact thing that I think all Amazon sellers can change that are listening to this call is the main image. So, you know, the main image is typically what gets people onto your listing. And that's kind of like the first step of what it takes to check out. So, you know, people test all different types of things from the main image to all the images to the price and the title and the bullets and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: The one thing that's always the highest impact from that
1: is the main
0: image. So, that essentially, if you're listening to this in the audience right now, everybody, it's like if you just kind of roll with, whatever main image you had from day one and it's maybe a year or two later with that product, how do you know that you're maximizing the sales of that product if you haven't tried a different main image? Because as you were saying, right. there's there's going to be a huge fluctuation on, on the amount of clicks that, that your product is getting, and it, obviously sales too, um, just based on trying something different and rotating things out. And I think a long time ago when you guys rolled out Splitly, you were trying to get really creative with, and and trying to really stand out with some of these main images, right? Like they were kind of really thinking outside the box and like how to, how to get people to stop their eyeballs on your product. And that was kind of like a big challenge at the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's still really effective, um, doing a lot of that. So yeah, keep that in mind if you're listening to this and you know, you're looking to kind of optimize your listing. That's one of the highest impact things you can do.
0: Great. Excellent. So let's move on to outsourcing here. So, um, You know, obviously a lot of people listening to this, you know, I I get that people are really busy, you know, they're not all um, quitting, they haven't all quit their jobs or quit school or whatever, like your time is pretty limited to to work on their business and grow it and things like that, especially early on. And that might change later on as as you grow and, and, you know, who knows, but um, what are some tasks? So there's obviously a ton of things to do, especially early on when you're trying to start your private label business or physical products business what are some tasks that sellers should consider outsourcing in your opinion just to kind of help out so that they can focus their efforts in on other things and not be bogged down by maybe minutia type of things or what have you
1: mm. one of the things that i think you, that sellers shouldn't outsource are um, some things like doing your own product research because that's like very, very high impact. and it's kind of it's pretty tough to outsource that to someone else. Um other things like just kind of like setting up your seller central account and placing your first order in a few of those things. I think those are kind of like, really important principles for any business owner to understand so I'd recommend at least starting out not to outsource those some of the things that I think are good candidates for outsourcing even right away are things like your photography you know if you're not good at photography you don't have a nice camera or good lighting or that doesn't sound like it's something that's fun for you you know I think that would be like a really good thing to outsource also things like doing doing your keyword research and creating your listing you know if you're not a good copywriter uh, I think that's a uh, a, a a high impact thing that you can outsource relatively easily and for not much money. And then, you know, there are just like a number of other tasks. Like maybe you're setting up like a legal entity or, uh, just like a number of other things that just kind of like intimidate you about your business Or another good ones on like packaging design. It's pretty hard for kind of like amateur designers if you don't really have any design experience to like create decent packaging. So those are all be like items that are good candidates, uh, to outsource or to hire a freelancer to do so.
0: Yeah, I'm right on board with you there. I think that's excellent, excellent advice. So for everybody that says I don't have enough time or they're too bogged down, um, just know that there are so many different people out there willing to help you with these little tasks or big tasks or whatever and anything in between. So um, you don't have to go at it alone and know everything and be the jack of all trades. Um, But as Greg mentioned, yeah, there are certain things that you probably just wanna build as a skill set. You know, with the keywords and research and things like that. But um, you guys have um, what is it called? Jungle Market, right? I'm I'm not super familiar with this, so I I understand it's. Is it kind of like the Fiverr for for Amazon sellers? Is, is that kind of yeah? Accurate? That's
1: a great way to put it. Okay. Yeah, if you go to um, JungleScout.com and go to products, you can find the Jungle Scout Market. And what drove us to build this is. We don't really – or I think it loses us a little bit of money. We don't really make any money from it. But what drove us to make this is people were always asking us, you know, like, who do you recommend for photography? Who do you recommend for this and that and the other thing? And we're like, you know what? We just need kind of like a central resource um, to give to our uh, audience or are people, you know, looking for different tasks to do for their Amazon business where they can find like high quality pre-vetted um, freelancers to like help them with their business. You know, like at Jungle Scout, um, our mission is really to just help entrepreneurs build successful Amazon businesses. And this is like a, this was an area that we felt like was missing a little bit because it was kind of tough for people to find like good designers and good photographers or whatever else on Fiverr. So yeah, you can check out the Jungle Scout market. It We launched it I guess about a year ago now. And there's the uh, the response overall has been very positive from everyone using it. Um, like something crazy, like 98% of the sales or something result in a five-star review, which means we've done a really good job pre-vetting these people that like we allow on the platform. And um, so yeah, go check it out. You know, the you'll find uh, it's, it's specialized in only freelancers, that um, are very familiar and actually specialize with working with Amazon sellers. So as a result, you just find people there that are of high quality. They're familiar with working with um, individuals like yourselves. So yeah, it's a it's it's a pretty cool thing.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I don't think there's a day that goes by that if like you peruse the uh, some of the Facebook groups, there's somebody out there always posting like, hey, you know, anybody have a good photographer? Anybody have a good this right. or good that? So yeah, so you know, obviously people want recommendations, but if you guys have already kind of done a lot of the work, that's that's awesome. So you guys check that out. Um, I'm gonna try to wrap this up here in just a little bit, Greg. This has all been amazing information, by the way. Now, what advice would you give another seller wanting to grow their, their brand or their business, whatever it is that they're creating? What, would you, what advice would you give them to help them get to, let's say, the seven-figure level or maybe even the eight-figure level, depending upon where they're at? You know, if somebody's at the six, they want to get to the seven now. Or what have you. So, like what advice would you give to somebody that wants to grow and get to the next step?
1: The easiest way to grow on Amazon is to launch more products. You know, you can you can always optimize and squeeze a few more sales out of almost every listing, but there gets to be a point of kind of like diminishing returns from it, right? So I mean the easiest way is gonna to be to launch more products on Amazon. And if you like to grow your business and you're listening to this right now, I would encourage to ask yourself. And, and kind of be thinking about what do I feel like I've kind of like really mastered and what do I need to still work on? So, you know, maybe you've mastered selecting the right products and the products that you're launching are um, selling pretty well, but you have uh, you know, you, you don't feel like you're ranking for very many keywords. You need to kind of like work on your keyword research or what have you. And then if you continue to ask yourself that and you feel like you're, you're pretty well-rounded and understand like the system really well at that point, it, then usually leads to either you don't have enough capital scale or there's just not enough hours in the day and you need to hire help, um, to do so. And then once you have those problems, those are actually really good problems to have because there actually is like, you know, capital out there for people to grow their businesses. And I, I used to not really think this way, but I think as I've kind of matured as an entrepreneur, now I'm very open to the idea of, um, taking capital or, you know, like taking cash, borrowing cash in order to, uh, purchase inventory. So, you know, I think that overall is a good problem to have. And then same thing, just not having enough hours in the day, you know, at that point, hopefully your business is doing pretty well. And at that point you should be able to afford to hire, you know, you can even start off with just kind of like part-time help.
0: Cool. Have, have you ever, uh, speaking of the loans or anything like that have you ever taken one through Amazon or was it like another company?
1: Yeah, I actually did Amazon. So mm-hmm. at at some point, uh, Amazon was, or it got to the point where they offered me a lot of money at like a very good rate. And this was a couple years ago now leading up to Q4. And I was like, you know what, um, this would help me make sure that like, I, you know, like have enough uh, inventory going into Q4. So yeah, I did that one. And then I, I just know a lot of other, uh, successful sellers that I found, um, quite a few different, um, uh, Places in order like to get loans. So with that being said, I I wouldn't rec if you're just launching your first product, I wouldn't recommend borrowing money for it because like you're still trying to figure this whole thing out. And you know, your your first product might not be a success and you need to try another one. And it gets to be kind of dangerous if you're using this cash to kind of like explore a new business that you're not familiar with or you're still trying to learn. Where I think it makes more sense is like, all right, like you know, I've, I've launched a few products. I understand how this works. You know, I'm, I'm confident in my abilities and that I can do well with launching new products, but cash is the only thing holding me back. I think that's when you're a great candidate to take out, uh, loans for
0: inventory. Okay, good. That's excellent. Um, now where can people learn more about whatever we just talked about and you online? So obviously jungle scout, but it, is that where you're going to kind of direct people here or like, where can people, uh, people find more about you?
1: Yeah, I think that's the best spot. Just go to junglescout.com. You know, I still write on the blog sometimes. Um, uh, you can find all of the products that we talked about throughout this episode there. Uh, there's tons of great resources. Um, if you're other looking for other resources, our YouTube channels, um, I think of really high quality and we're posting new stuff on there every week.
0: Yeah. You guys have an excellent YouTube channel, by the way. So I just want to Thanks, throw that Nick. out there. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, definitely do. So it's uh, it's awesome. Um, are you going to be at any upcoming functions or, or, uh, conferences or anything like that, that people might be uh, wanting to be aware of?
1: Yeah, I'm going to be at a, a number. Um, let's see, I'm going to the Prosper show, uh, next Monday. I'm going to, I'm going to be speaking at the event that, um, amazing.com is putting on the summer SellerCon. con. I'm going to uh, Steve Chu's uh, conference as well as Scott Volker. So yeah, I'll be at a handful of them uh, throughout this year. If there's an Amazon Seller Conference going on, there's in, at least in the U.S. There's probably a good chance I'll be there.
0: Awesome! I will. Uh, I will be joining you at the seller con there this year. So that's the first time. Sweet. I'm uh, First time I'm going to that one. So very cool. I'm pretty excited about it. Las Vegas, June. It's going to be great. <laughs> So, right on. Um, all right, well, Greg, I want to thank you so much for joining us here today and just, you know, giving us tons of amazing value, great information. I know the audience is pumped. I'm pumped. So, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks.
0: Wow, that was awesome great information. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. So much value delivered throughout that entire conversation with Greg there. he had so many great points. Whether you're just getting started or whether you're an experienced seller, there's really something for everybody. So many takeaways that hopefully you guys are going to go run with now and apply in your businesses. So a couple of the key points that I took away from that conversation with Greg, first point being, Greg wants us to keep it simple when it comes to to product selection. So his advice was to find products with high demand that we can improve upon. So looking for products with, you know, like three-star reviews or, or stuff like that where there's opportunities to fix the products up, to improve them, to make them better. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're just trying to see what's already selling, where there's already big demand and go in there and solve problems and fix products so that the customers get a better experience. So it's really about keeping it simple. Now the other thing that Greg mentioned is if you really wanna drive extra sales and kind of maximize your listing, you need to make sure that your main image is top notch. So if you have never split tested your main image, you might be leaving money on the table. So uh, split testing, he, he mentioned using Splitly so that's another one of his softwares there. I've personally used that before. So if you're working with your photographer, my advice is to always get multiple main image options created. Try to be visually creative as well. So again, your product or your listing stands out from the competition and gets clicked on, okay? So it's really important. And that's such, a, such like a small change that can have such a dramatic uh, impact on the amount of views that and clicks that your product gets and um, ultimately sales. And uh, lastly, Greg Greg mentioned something amazing about finding great suppliers to work with. So a lot of people go right to Alibaba, kind of the old-fashioned way or whatever, but Greg had a great tip about checking the shipping records of uh, some of the top uh, competitors out there and the top products out there, and you can find all that uh, record as public information that you can access, and essentially you can find out where these suppliers are, who they are, and start contacting them that way. So it's kind of just a different way of going at it. He did mention that he's gonna be integrating something similar to that or that information into his Jungle Scout web app, which I thought was super cool. So I'm really excited to hear about that. And guys, if you don't have Jungle Scout or the Chrome extension or the web app or any of that stuff, then you have to check out the deals and the discounts that I have on my resources page, okay? So if you go to privatelabelershow.com forward slash resources, you're gonna see some exclusive offers and discount links, okay? So there's actually, uh, I believe, a special discount link as well for a Jungle Scout bundle offer that I have that you guys might be interested in. I think that's like the Chrome extension and the web app or something similar to that. So make sure you check that out. And uh, you can also... Find all these links, everything that we talked about. The show notes uh, will give you everything. If you go to privatelabelershow.com forward slash 118. So all the different things we kind of mentioned, um, it'll all be in there for you to kind of consume and digest and uh, uh, take in. So hopefully, again, guys, you found as much value in this episode as I did. I'm going to leave it at that, and I'll talk to you guys later.
1: This episode of The Private Labeler Show has ended. Please show your support for the podcast by subscribing for more business strategies and tactics to help you build your empire. Also, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes. See you in the next episode.